October 31st. Boys and girls, what does that mean to you? What does that date mean to you? October 31st. When you go to the supermarkets or other stores, there is no doubt what October 31st means to our culture today. When I grew up in the Netherlands, I'd never heard of something called Halloween. When I grew up in the Netherlands, October 31st meant one thing only, the commemoration of the Protestant Reformation. And as you know, it was not accidental that Luther selected that day to nail the 95 Theses to the church doors of the church in Wittenberg. It was the evening, it was a hallowed evening. That was the evening before All Saints' Day. But sadly, I remember coming to America more than half a century ago. I suddenly learned something that I'd never seen before. Halloween. And you know that as the years have progressed, it seems like every year the manifestation of that becomes more and more bizarre. As you drive down the streets, you see the most bizarre scenes displayed. It seems like every year people want to outdo each other in being even more bizarre. Let's not think for a moment, congregation, that this is just some innocent fun, as some people appear to think. What people don't realize is that October 31st is one of the high days of Satanism. On October 31st, all through the country, people who are involved in the occult, they gather together. It's remarkable that providentially that the commemoration of this extraordinary event in history, one of the great revivals in church history, that that coincides with a celebration that has all the markings of Satanism. And it's very sad that also in Europe, where the Reformation began, where more and more you will see open displays of this very thing. That's why for our children and for our generation, it's so important that we never cease to focus on why October 31st is so very important for us today. And so for us, that day is an important day, a day that should be as important to us as July 4th when we commemorate the independence, the birth of our nation. As you well know, we, we all are accustomed to have special days, special days on which we remember. Our anniversaries, for instance, when we remember and reflect upon all the years that have gone by. And so too, we are called to remember today and this week what the Lord has done. And it's clear from the Word of God that God clearly directed His children to remember His deeds. 
That's why the Bible is filled with accounts of the deeds of God. Why are so many of God's deeds recorded in Scripture? Because congregation, this is such a fundamental truth, is that God does what He does because He is who He is. God does what He does because He is who He is. So in other words, what that means, that in all of God's deeds, we see a reflection of God's character. We even say that about human beings. We, very common, a very common expression, is it not, that actions speak louder than words. In other words, when people observe us for a while, when they observe our actions, they, they, they will get an accurate reflection of who we really are. But this is perfectly true of God. And that's why with God's help, we want to focus on one of those occasions when God clearly directed His people to remember His deeds, and then we will weave into it also a focus on the Reformation itself. So please turn with me to the chapter we read, Joshua 4, verse 7. Joshua 4, verse 7. And let me read verse 6 as well, 6 and 7 together. That this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask the fathers in time to come, what mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever." So this text speaks of a memorial to the mighty deeds of God. First of all, it focuses on Israel's calling to remember the mighty deeds of God, and then specifically the amazing event of the parting of the waters of Jordan, allowing them to enter into the land that God had promised them. So Israel's calling to remember the mighty deeds of God. Secondly, our calling to remember God's mighty deeds in the Reformation. And thirdly, our calling to observe God's mighty deeds today. Joshua 3 ends with these very simple words. All the people were clean, gone over. What a, what a marvelous testimony of God's care for His covenant people. The same was true exactly 40 years early, when all the people passed over the Red Sea, all of them, none of them perished. And again, this is true. How faithful, how faithful God had been to the people of Israel. How remarkably He had delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt. How He had led them those 40 years through the wilderness. Even though they were a rebellious and gainsaying people, He never forsook them. He never failed to provide for them. Every day He gave them manna from heaven. And the rock that produced water followed them 
and provided water for them in an environment that was utterly void of water, an environment in which they could have never survived. God had promised to Abraham that he would give the land of Canaan to his people, to his seed, for a possession. And when we just read these simple words, and all the people were clean passed over. It's one of those passages in Scripture that again affirms that God keeps his word. He keeps his promises, as impossible as it may seem at times, but he keeps his promises. It's, it's interesting when you look at verse 23 of chapter 4 that those two events, God leading Israel through the Red Sea and leading them through the Jordan, how they are linked together. It says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until ye were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried up from before us until we were gone over. So we could put it this way, that Israel's journey began with a miracle and it ended with a miracle. In both cases, they were faced with an utter impossibility. When they stood before the Red Sea, they were surrounded by mountains and Pharaoh was behind them. But then God made a way when there was no way. And again, when they stood before the Jordan, now, in the summer, the Jordan is a rather narrow river, but it's clearly, this wasn't harvest time, and Scripture specifically tells us that the river was overflowing, overflowing. So, the, 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 the Jordan was at its highest, and here stood an entire nation. And again, the Lord made a way where there was no way. And so, this was a, a wonderful affirmation of God's covenant faithfulness to his covenant people. That's what they were, his covenant people. And what that means, boys and girls, is that there was this very special relationship between God and Israel, a very special union. In a very special way, they were his people. They belonged to him. Even though they had so often misbehaved, as is so sadly true for us as well. In Psalm 106, verse 43 through 45, we read, Many times did he deliver them, but they provoked him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. But then this wonderful word, nevertheless, in spite of that, in spite of their failure, in spite of their disobedience, in spite of their unbelief, nevertheless, he regarded their affliction. And when he heard their cry, and he remembered for them his covenant, and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. You see, congregation, God is a God who cannot deny himself. He did not remember their covenant. He did not remember what they had promised because that they broke, they failed. But he remembered his covenant. The congregation, that's why 
the church of Christ still exists today. That's why God has until this day not abandoned his people. That's why we have come this far. Not because we have been so faithful. Not because our forefathers have been so faithful. But because God is a God who until this day is the God of his people and their seed. That's why God said to Israel, I do it not for your sake, but I do it for my name's sake. And of course the application is to God's children today. The reason we are where we are, the reason God has brought us where we are also in our life's journey is because God has proven also in your life and in my life to be that ever faithful, confident, keeping God. And in spite of our unfaithfulness, in spite of our stumblings and our failings and our unbelief and the fact that we forget Him days without number, here we are because He is a God cannot deny himself. And therefore he cannot and will not deny his people, his people, his covenant people. That's why Paul writes these remarkable words in 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so it is our obligation, just like the people of Israel, it is our obligation to remember the covenant faithfulness of God, to remember His deeds, to remember His benefits. As you know, Psalm 103 opens that way, where David exhorts himself and exhorts us that we are not to forget all His benefits. And God knew that his people were very much inclined to do precisely that. You know, boys and girls, you know how quickly they forgot that God had just delivered them, just delivered them out of Egypt. He had just live, delivered them through the Red Sea, and it didn't take very long, and they were complaining, and they were grumbling and mumbling. They already forgot what he had done. And so the Lord said of this, he said, this people... They forget me days without number. And which true believer would not have to say with sorrow that that's also my sin, that we forget the Lord days without number, that we are so quick to forget his benefits, so quick to forget all the mercies that he has bestowed upon us. And therefore, God now specifically directs them to establish a memorial. That's what we saw in verse 7. It says, this shall be a sign among you. This will be a visible sign. And notice God's care for the children. Notice His care for the following generations. Get it so consistent with who He is. God is a God who cares deeply about the following generations. 
I am the God of my people and of their seed. A seed shall serve me. Peter understood it on the day of Pentecost. The promise is unto you and to your children. And so God's concern for the following generation, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean ye by these stones? Boys and girls, I want to encourage you to do that to your parents. Ask them questions. Ask them. Ask them to sit down with you and to tell you about the Reformation, to tell you about the mighty deeds of God. Parents, we need to do that. We need to tell them what God has done in previous generations. You need to tell them, parents, please, you need to tell them, you need to tell them what God has done in your life. And so, boys and girls, this passage encourages you to do precisely that. God said the same thing with the Passover, that if the children would ever ask you, why are we doing this? Then the fathers were, and what happens today when the Jews celebrate Passover, the fathers will then explain to them what happened and how God miraculously delivered them out of the bondage of Egypt. And so the, the specific purpose of this memorial would be that that memorial, those 12 stones would be a representation of God's miraculous care for his covenant people. And what's interesting, congregation, is that, and we, we actually read right over that, but God asked, God asked to, them to establish a, a double memorial. We're talking about two piles of stone here. If you read this chapter very carefully, and almost all commentators, without exception, draw your attention to it. Look at verse 3. What it said, there they are directed to take 12 stones, to carry them over with you, and to leave them in the lodging place where you shall lodge this night. So where they would lodge, and we know from verse 19, it would be that they encamped in Gilgal. So in Gilgal, those 12 stones would be piled up. That's location number one. But what do we read in verse 9? It says, And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood, and they are there unto this day. So there were twelve stones that were placed in the midst of Jordan, where the priests had stood, and there were twelve stones placed at Gilgal so that there was a double memorial to remember, in a sense, God's double miracle, God's double mercy of which he reminded them at this time. So that this memorial would be a, rem would be a memorial of what he did 40 years ago when he delivered them out of Egypt and a memorial that would remind them of how miraculously he opened also the Jordan River for them. And of course, it was not accidental that there had to be 12 stones. 
And boys and girls, I think, especially the older ones, you, you understand why. There were 12 tribes. So one stone for every tribe. And that, so that memorial consisting of 12 stones would be a visible representation of the very people of God. A visible representation to the generations to come of the marvelous things that God had done for them so that they would never forget what he has done. God is a God who wants to be remembered. That's why we are here every Lord's Day. That's why God has instituted the sacraments as a memorial. But actually, God even speaks of his own name as a memorial. Turn with me to Exodus 3 verse 15 where God uses that very same word that is found here in our text. Exodus 3 verse 15. And there we read, And God said moreover unto Moses, Thou shalt, thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. O God, God loved to identify himself as such. There you have it. I am the God of my people and their generations and the children that follow. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me unto you. And here it comes. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. God is saying, in all generations, I want to be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to be known as the covenant-keeping God. And of course, ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ is God's ultimate memorial given to the children of men. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate revelation of the name of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate display of the character of God. So that means that God wants us always to think of him in terms of the person and the work of his only begotten Son. And so we are commanded to do the same. A few weeks ago, we focused on Psalm 78, verse 4 through 7. Let's read that passage again as we now transition to briefly focusing on the Reformation. So let's turn to Psalm 78, verses 4 through 7. Let's read that passage once more. And there we read one of the, one of the classic passages of the Bible, as you know, regarding the training of our children. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. There you have it. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that's why it is very profitable for us to remember 
what God has done also by means of the Protestant Reformation. And so I want to just very briefly summarize the remarkable life story of Martin Luther. Martin Luther, who was born on November 10 in 1483 and died on February 18 of 1546 at the age of, of 62. And what a remarkable story his story is. When Luther grew up as a little boy, he could have never imagined that God would use him in such an extraordinary way. He grew up as the son of a miner. His father's name was Hans Luder, L-U-D-E-R. Later, Luther, uh, Luther changed that name to Luther with a T-H. His father was a hardworking miner, uh, was very strict. The, the discipline uh, administered to his son was often very severe. But he loved his son, and he had great dreams for his son. He wanted his son to escape the world of mining. And he wanted his son to have an education and to become a lawyer. That's what he was destined to be. Luther grew up in a church environment where the light of the gospel had almost been extinguished. Where the poor people lived in utter bondage to a corrupt ecclesiastical system. People lived in bondage. They lived in fear of God. They had no knowledge of the God of the Scriptures. They only thought of God. When they thought of God, they were filled with terror. And they were constantly taught that their, whatever they did was inadequate. And they were, people were never sure if they had ever done enough to please God. And so Luther grew up in that environment. And he was a, a man with a very tender conscience who early on became concerned about what his relationship was to God. And so what happens to Luther? He's now a young student, a long, young law student. A close friend of his dies as a result of the plague. Plague was so common in those days that really impacted him. And he struggled with the question, what would have happened to me if I would have had to face God, if I would have died instead of my friend? A question that troubled him and that plagued him. And then, not long after that, in the year 1505, as he was walking, he was overtaken by a very severe thunderstorm, so severe that Luther thought he would perish. And in his bitterest anguish, he did what he had taught, been taught to do, and that is to pray to one of the saints. That was also the, the sad environment, you see, that you could not directly go to God. You could not even directly go to Christ. You had to avail yourself of the saints. And so he cried to the, the patron saint of the miners, and he promised Saint Anne that if he would survive this thunderstorm, that he would become a monk. That's what he did to the utter dismay and anger of his father, who could not accept this. But Luther was determined. He was, he was convinced 
that God had spoken to him, that God had delivered him out of a dangerous situation. And so he becomes an, an Augustinian monk. And as a result of that, he then becomes a priest. He is ordained as a priest. And that meant that he was called upon also to perform the Mass. And to give you an indication of how, how very tender the conscience of this young Luther was, is he says when he stood before the altar there and he was lifting up the elements, he said, I, I felt utterly stupefied and horror-stricken. For how could I speak to the holy and eternal God when I am but dust and ashes and full of sin? And that was real to Luther. His sinnership was real. He was filled with fear. He realized that he was sinning all the time. That's why he came to the confessional over and over again, hours on end. And the confessors became tired of it. One of them said, why don't you come back when you have really committed a sin? But the leader of that monastery, Johann von Staupitz, he took a real liking to this young monk. This young monk who, who abused himself, who was so brutal to himself, who deprived himself, who, who, who tried to chastise himself even by, by harming himself physically, hoping that somehow, somehow he could find favor with God. And so when Staupitz once took him aside and said to him, if you expect Christ to forgive you, Come in with something to forgive. God is not angry with you, but you are angry with God. That's true. And Luther admitted it. He was ultimately, he feared God. He actually said, I, I hated him. Because it seemed that wherever I went, his righteousness, his anger pursued me. And he could not find peace for his soul. And then von Stauper sent him on a special journey to Rome, the holy city. And he came back as a thoroughly disillusioned man. All he saw there was utter corruption. And then von Stauper, directed by the Lord, no doubt, had this idea. He said, you know what he said to those to whom he consulted? He says, we need to... We, meet, we need to make this young man so busy that he doesn't have time to think about every single little sin that he might have committed. Let's appoint him to become a teacher of the Holy Scriptures. And that's what happened in 1512. And again, this was by God's divine direction. Because now Luther, who was conversant in the original languages of Scripture, conversant in Latin, he was a brilliant man, he poured himself into the Word of God. That was the sad thing in those days. People didn't have the Bible. They were deprived of the Word of God. They were entirely dependent upon the clergy. And even in the libraries, there would be a couple of the Bible, but it would be chained so that the Bible could not be taken out of the library. And as Luther began to work through the Scriptures, gradually, it began to dawn on him that something was fundamentally wrong with the religious environment in which he had grown up. 
Gradually, as he worked through the Scriptures, the light of the gospel began to dawn on him. And then, of course, he was confronted with the whole uh, practice of indulgences. And I have to be brief here. It was especially a man called Johann Tetzel who was in a very aggressive way, selling indulgences because the Pope, Pope Leo X, had issued a new indulgence, an indulgence that covered everything, an indulgence that if you bought that, all your sins were forgiven. You could even purchase the pardon of your relatives so that they would come out of purgatory. And the Pope did not issue that because he cared about souls. He needed money. He was a wicked man. And his dream was to leave Rome better than when he came. And he wanted to build this, this phenomenal cathedral known as St. Peter's Cathedral. And he needed funds. So he took advantage of the ignorance of the people. All of whom longed to know that they would not go to purgatory. They would not go to hell. That somehow they could escape the wrath of God. And here came this indulgence promoted by Tetzel. And said, if you buy this, you will be granted a full pardon. And this really aroused Luther with anger, especially when he encountered members of his own congregation who had bought such an indulgence. To make a long story short, that prompted him to sit down and to write down what are now known as the 95 Theses. But we also, of course, we know that he did it for one purpose only, Luther was not at all thinking about reforming the church. He was a son of the church. But he was concerned about this abuse. And he felt it necessary in light of what he was learning from the scriptures to address this abuse. It's clear from these 95 theses that the spiritual breakthrough had not yet occurred in Luther's life. Because in these 95 theses, there is not a single reference to justification by faith, which was so very, very important to Luther. And so the opening thesis of these 95 theses read as follows. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And then he unpacks that, of course, in the thesis that follows, that the pardon of God, the mercy of God, is not for sale, is not to be purchased. Now, he did this for academic purposes only. All he wanted is a debate, a debate among scholars like himself, among theologians, to debate this whole issue of indulgences. And so what did he do? He went to the public bulletin board of those days, which would be a church door. And so he simply wanted to invite fellow theologians to a debate about the indulgences. He could never have imagined what that simple act would result in. Because someone who knew Latin read it and was stunned by what they read. They copied it, brought it to a printer. And then, folks, what's amazing that within two weeks, these indulgences had spread through all of Germany. Now, we know that today, with social media today, 
Something like that would have been known worldwide instantly. But for those days when the printing presses were still primitive, to think that, that, that these indulgences literally made it all through Germany and even beyond in a matter of two weeks is absolutely astonishing. What Luther thought was just an, an academic thing, a minor event, turned out to be an avalanche. Because you see, the time was ripe for it. The time was ripe for it. The people all through Germany, people became so disillusioned and so disgruntled with the church. Of course, Luther, in that sense, was not the first reformer. There were men before him, like John Huss of Bohemia and John Wycliffe in England, who had begun to address the corruption of biblical doctrine. But the reason why their influence remained so limited is because the printing press had not yet been invented. But now, you see, the printing press had been invented, and suddenly there was a means to duplicate what Luther had written. And initially, the Pope, he just ignored it. And he at one point said, well, this is just a product of a, of a drunk monk in Germany. He just kind of ridiculed it. But the influence began to multiply, because this was... This was God's doing. And, and Luther's own grasp of Scripture began to grow and grant to grow. But there was one thing, one thing that he could not reconcile in his mind. And that is the righteousness of God. He viewed that righteousness in a negative way. That righteousness haunted him. And he knew that God, what, what God required of him, he knew he could not produce. Until God, by his Spirit, shed light. And Romans 1 verse 17. There's some difference of opinion among historical scholars, whether this was one moment or whether this was progressive, whatever it may be, we do know from Luther himself that, that Romans 1 verse 17 was used by God to, to remove the scales from his eyes. And it says there so simply, it's a quotation of, of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. A phrase that is repeated three times in the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. Suddenly it dawned on him that the righteousness that God requires of us is a righteousness that he gives us. And that when we believe in Christ, when we trust in Christ, that God bestows that righteousness upon us. That's why Luther coined the phrase alien righteousness. What he meant by that, a righteousness outside of ourselves. And so what Luther discovered, congregation, is the wonderful truth of the gospel, that in Christ, God offers to us what he requires. What does God require of us? He requires of us perfect, flawless righteousness, which we don't have. And Luther understood that experientially. There's a reason why God allowed him to dwell in darkness so long. There's a reason why God allowed him to struggle so long and so deeply so that he would understand as none other what it meant to be justified by faith alone so that he understood the liberating power of the gospel 
so that he could become God's mouthpiece in beginning to articulate this marvelous truth that the just shall live by faith alone. Oh, that's the wonder of the gospel congregation. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of God's character, that the God against whom we have sinned, the God before whom we cannot stand, the God who requires a perfect righteousness from us, that by giving His Son, He has provided that which He requires and that which we lack. In His Son, He offers to us freely that flawless righteousness, And he promises us in his word that that's what Luther discovered here in the famous so-called tower experience. He was in his tower studying the scriptures. Oh, he discovered that liberating truth that when we trust in Christ, God imputes, he imputes to us that flawless righteousness of his son. And then he views me, the sinner, he views us in terms of that righteousness. That's why Luther coined the phrase that God's children are saints and sinners simultaneously. We remain sinners until our dying day. We remain sinners until our last breath. And yet, by grace, God views us as saints in Christ. He views his people in terms of the finished work of Christ. That's why God can say of his children today, I see no iniquity in my Jacob, and I see no transgression in my Israel. That's the the mystery of the gospel. So Luther writes this famous quote. He says, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, and he was the most impeccable monk, you could find, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and had no confidence that my character would satisfy him. Night and day I pondered until I saw the meaning of the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is the righteousness by which through sheer grace and mercy he justifies us through faith. Immediately, I felt myself to have gone through open doors into paradise. And now Luther, Luther begins to boldly proclaim justification by faith alone. And we can truly say, and many theologians after him have said that, that that doctrine is the hinge on which the entire gospel turns. That is the heart of the Christian gospel. And as he began to proclaim it more boldly, he was getting into more and more trouble because Luther was a rather bold man. He was not a man who would mince any words. So as a result, he participates in a debate with one of the great theologians of his day, John Eck, face-to-face in Leipzig. John Eck very carefully and very craftily maneuvered Luther into a position where Luther agreed with John Huss, who had been burned as a heretic. And the moment he had him there, he said, heresy, heresy. 
So now Luther was branded as a heretic. As a result, the Pope issued a ban to, to a ban of excommunication. But Luther had become so bold that together with his students, he stood around a bonfire and he threw that papal bull, he threw it into the fire and it burned. But Luther's life became now endangered. And yet the influence that he had was such that the Pope was careful because he knew that Luther was protected by Frederick the Wise. Frederick the Wise, who was the one who started the university in Wittenberg. So, as, so in that sense, Frederick the Wise was his master. And he was instrumental in having this, this meeting, this gathering called the Diet of Worms, where all the power brokers of that day came together. King Charles V was there. Okay, the Eliander, the representative of the Pope was there. All of them were there. And when Luther entered that room, they had a table where all of his books that he had been writing were on display. And he was asked to recant. Luther was stunned by that request. He says, how can you expect me to, in one moment, to, to disavow everything I've ever done? And so he says, please give me some time. And so they gave him 24 hours. During those 24 hours, oh, how he wrestled with God. And he found comfort in Psalm 46, which became so very special to him. And he felt strengthened in the inner man. And he came back the next day, and again, he was said, will you recant? And Luther said, among other things, unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Of course, then Luther was placed under the ban. It meant that anybody that saw him was allowed to execute him. Frederick the Wise, wanting to protect his favorite professor, he arranged for him to be captured and to be brought to the Wartburg Castle. We need to move on quickly here. Most of you know the story quite well. And again, this was God's overruling providence. Because there Luther, in a matter of weeks, translated the Bible from Greek into common German language. What a gift that was to the Reformation. It ultimately ended up in translating the entire Word of God. And so life goes on. The, the Reformation really begins to gain traction. In 1525, he writes a book called The Bondage of the Will in response to the scholar, the Dutch scholar Erasmus, who denied that the will of man was utterly corrupt. Uh, in other words, Erasmus had an Arminian view of the will of man, and Luther responded to that. In 1525, the former priest entered into marriage to Catherine von Bora, a woman that played a very important role and a woman he 
uh, respected greatly, esteemed highly, and even called her his Lord Katie. Then in 1529, a sad moment, the Marburg Colloquy, when the Zwingli, representing the Swiss Reformation, wants to meet with Luther to talk about the Lord's Supper. And Luther stubbornly refused to listen to Zwingli and insisted that when Christ said, this is my body, that he meant that literally. So Luther could not give up the error of Roman Catholicism completely, though he, what he did reject is that the bread actually becomes the flesh of Christ and the blood, the wine becomes his blood. But what's sad about that is Luther's strength with his weakness. There was only one way, and it was Luther's way. And if you disagree with him, you disagree with the truth. Uh, Luther, was, Luther was not a man to negotiate. And so, sadly, this resulted in the first split of the Protestant church. Anyway, whatever it may be, we need to wrap this up, right? Um, the church began to grow, the Reformation spread. Um, in a, in a way that was beyond his imagination. It created some problems. It, uh, it caused a peasant result, uh, a peasant revolt in Germany. Um, towards the end of his life, uh, Luther becomes a very frustrated man, a broken man. He, he had multiple illnesses, and he became almost a bitter man towards the end. And he said some very foolish things about the Jews, which the Nazis actually abused when Hitler came to power. And so when you study the life of Luther, you marvel at what God used him for. And yet we know enough about Luther to realize it was grace alone. Grace alone that made the difference. And Luther understood that. At the end of his life, he famously said, when people would point to him, all that had been accomplished in Germany, he said, it's, it's not I that did it. He said, I am just a, a sack of maggots that he talked about himself. He said, the Word did it. I didn't do it. The Word did it. It was the power of the Word of God that brought about the Reformation. A congregation that is so very true today, the Word alone can do it. And then he comes to the end of his life, and shortly before he died, he said these wonderful words. What a beautiful, beautiful testimony, a beautiful testimony of this dying reformer. He says, oh, my heavenly Father, eternal and merciful God, thou hast revealed to me thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. I have preached him. I have confessed him. I love him, and I worship him as my dear Savior and Redeemer, him whom the wicked persecute, accuse, and blaspheme. Into thy hands I commend my spirit, God of truth, thou hast redeemed. And he said that three times, God of truth, thou hast redeemed. A man who died believing the gospel that he had preached, the gospel God had raised him up to proclaim again in all of its fullness. And in 1563, 1546, on February 18, he died in the town in which he was born, the town of Eisleben. So we need to wrap this up. 
congregation, we may not forget what God accomplished in the Reformation. We are the sons and daughters of the Reformation. We are the beneficiaries of that Reformation. And we have the sacred responsibility to battle, to make sure that that gospel that was recovered in the Reformation, that that gospel will continue to be proclaimed in all of its purity. We are commanded to do what Jude wrote in his epistle. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And that's why, parents, we must make sure that our children, when they grow up, by the time they are adults, that they are fully informed about the Protestant Reformation, that they know why we are reformed, why we are what we are. And may this encourage us, because the God of the Reformation has not changed. And what he did in 1517, he can do again. That Reformation came when all seemed hopeless, when all the powers of that world were conspiring against Luther, yet God sovereignly and by his might and by his power caused that great revival to occur, and he is the same God today. And finally, most importantly, a question for me and for you. Is your heart reformed? That's where it started. The Reformation began in the heart of Martin Luther. Are we only reformed by name? Are we reformed by profession? Or are we reformed in our hearts? Have we grasped by grace that fundamental truth that the just shall live by faith alone? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give thee thanks that we could be in thy house this morning and that we could reflect on thy deeds. The deeds that thou didst do for thy people Israel, leading them through the Red Sea and through the Jordan, but also what thou hast done in the history of the church, using Martin Luther to give us again the unadulterated gospel that thou hast recorded in thy word, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may we remain committed to that gospel that as sons and daughters of the Reformation, that we will defend that truth, even if it would cost us our lives. And so bless us, help us to pass on these wonderful deeds of thine to our children as well, that they too may be acquainted with what thou hast done in the past, and that what thou hast done in the past would encourage us for today and for the unknown future. Bless the instruction that will be given to our children also today. And bring us here again in this evening hour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.